the Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders Teach, our mini-series on medical education. This is a special episode that we are recording live from AIM and very excited to share pearls. I'm Dr. Molly Hoyblein and I'm joined by my co-host. I'm Dr. Eric Krasnowska. So excited to be here with you, Molly, and live in Austin. Yeah, not exactly live, but, but we're in Austin. <laughs> we're a we're lot together. We're alive. <laughs> we're physically in the same place. Uh, so usually this uh, show uses expert interviews to bring you practice-changing knowledge around medical education. Um, today we're doing something a little bit different, where we sit down with some friends of the pod and talk about amazing sessions that we attended here at the conference. Um, amazing things that we learn, take-home points. We cover some really interesting sessions that we attended around coaching, around using escape rooms in medical education, around using podcasts in medical education, and supporting residents who need leave during residency. Um, so lots of great pearls. Mm -hmm. Hope you enjoy it. And without further ado, let's get to it. Yay! <laughs> All right. Uh, well, Dr. Anyango, thanks so much for joining us for some of these uh, recap pearls here. Um, just so the audience can get to know you, do you mind just giving us a quick one-liner of who you are? And Sure. Um, so I'm Josh Anyango. I am currently a chief resident at the Yale Primary Care Program. Um, hail from my alma mater, the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Whoop, whoop. Um, and uh, that's it. And are you okay if we call you Josh? Yeah, Josh is fine. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, Josh, you did a great job helping with the workshop and really did a lot of the, the heavy lifting with that. Um, and I know you also attended some some sessions today at AIM. Is it, was there anything that really stood out to you about today or any of the sessions that you wanted to start talking about? Uh, sure. I can start talking a little bit about the, um, the plenary session um, this morning with uh, Dr. Tibay. Asien. Dr. Tibe Asien. Um, fantastic um, conversation, uh, I think, that he kind of led with the group. I think what I found surprising, which is sort of his thesis for his talk, was just how far-reaching kind of race and discrimination has made its way and infiltrated its way into not just clinical medicine, but even medical education. And I think a lot of times we sort of talk about clinical medicine and, and how discrimination has sort of affected health outcomes for uh, a lot of minoritized patients. But the idea that even within medical education in various forms, whether it be from recruitment, retention, and even the content that learners are being exposed to, um, I thought was a real call to action for this particular audience um, to kind of re-examine what we can do to um, to make you know our educational spaces a more uh, equitable space for everybody, that's good. And Josh, did you have any particular take-home points, kind of like action items for yourself? We talked about um, you know the five Ds that kind of uh, Tube presented, but anything that you were like, oh, I might use this in my kind of educator approaches. Hmm. I think a lot of times it can be kind of um, intimidating to sort of think about the issue because it just, it's always kind of presented as this big 
systemic problem. And it can sort of feel like something like climate change where you're like, I don't know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I know it's a problem. I know it's really big, but I don't really see where my place is in trying to kind of fix this. Um, So I think for me, one of the um, one of the takeaways, I think, was sort of looking at this kind of leaky pipe theory that he sort of talked about and like, what are the places where we're losing, um, you know, great candidates who could really make a big difference in the academic medical space? Um, and, you know, what can I do as a participant in, in now in the academic medical space to sort of help um, retain some of these candidates and whether that be acting as a mentor or a sponsor or a coach, which I'll sort of get to in some other kind of (laughs) talks that I learned about. Um, I think there's various sort of things that I can do to help maybe close up some of those, you know, leaky pipes at an individual level, but also seeing like at an institutional level places where I can kind of participate um, to try to rectify some of the systemic things. Um, I think those are kind of some of the broad strokes of uh, action items that I took away. Amazing. Yeah, I I really liked how he brought in the educational part of it. I mean, it makes sense for this being the AIM conference, but I would agree it's it's not something I usually see carried forward in the conversation about race and medicine. Um, So, yeah, and and for our listeners, we are going to be having an episode coming out in the next few weeks where we got to sit down with Dr. Essien and talk in more depth about networking, but also a little bit about his plenary as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, Dr. Malik, thank you so much for joining us here at AIM. We're kind of going through some recaps of pearls of things that we really enjoyed hearing today in the last few days at AIM. Um, Could you just tell the, the audience just a quick little one-liner about yourself so they know you. You have been an episode on the regular, uh, you have been a guest on the regular Curbsiders before, but this is your first appearance on Curbsiders Teach. Yes, I'm excited to be here. Thanks so much. I am a um, academic hospitalist and clinician educator um, at uh, Emory University Hospital and School of Medicine. And um, yeah, I work a lot with GME and UME. And so I'm here in my role at AIM as an associate program director. Amazing. And what's been your favorite part of the conference so far? Well, I, um, prior to, I worked really closely with the chief resident as my role in the social program director. And we're always thinking about new ways to deliver content to residents who are busy and, um, and bored <laughs> with traditional ways that we deliver content. Um, so the um, faculty at um, Indiana University, uh, led by Dr. Sharp, um, along with Dr. Cox, um, did this? I wow, that was a really innovative and great workshop about um, using escape rooms, and they called it Operation Diagnosis: Applying Virtual Escape Room Construct to Clinical Reasoning Education. Um, something I really am kind of interested in, and in my my clinical world is clinical reasoning, um, and I. So you have a lot of great um, podcasts on clinical reasoning um, that I've listened to and I use, um, and um, I think but it's also really hard. And one of the things I think that come up come across in your previous um, episodes about clinical reasoning is how to teach it and how to actually make it happen. And so um, the this construct of using an escape room is having what I would say a traditional way we think about like a case, for example, with various portions of the case scenario, their history, their exam, their object, objective findings, and using um, you know, the gamification, which is a really a common technique that I think we use a lot for making didactics and content delivery more fun for the learners. 
Uh, I thought this was a really creative way of doing it. And so Dr. Sharp and Cox and her co their colleagues came up with a, a way of um, having puzzles, using puzzles, as well as using the information over kind of time to get to, not necessarily a diagnosis, really depends on what they were trying to get at, their learning points. But what I really like it from a, like an educating standpoint is it really gets back to the basics of, okay, what are the things you want to get across? Um, what are your learning objectives? Um, and then kind of working backwards to say, okay, how am I going to create this educational construct, in this case, an escape room? Um, what are going to be the puzzles? What are going to be the thing, the challenges that they're faced with to, um, you know, understand or like learn the different concepts? Um, so it was really, really Very really cool. Yeah, very innovative. But <laughs> yeah, agreed. Noble, is it okay if I call you Noble? Yeah, of course. Yes. I, I was wondering, um, you kind of love to use this to apply it to your role as both APD or kind of in a faculty development. Did you think of when you were in this workshop, like, oh man, I could use this in XYZ setting or how would you kind of use that escape room gamification? Um, one thing that came up in the, in the workshop was almost like a choose your own adventure type of scenario where you're like, you get, you're, you're on a track and you get to a point, you're at a dead end, you're like, oh, nope, that's not right. And then you have to get back, start back to a, a certain point. So, um, so conceptually, if you wanted to say your learning point was, um, you know, this, uh, uh, the scenario is leading you to a diagnosis of pulmonary embolism, for example. And um, the, uh, I think creating a case to say, to kind of lead you that way and saying that there are certain points that will, probably cross you up and you might think this is ACS or, or something, you know, that could also be causing chest pain. I love that because I think something about the games or the kind of like clues and solving things are really uh, both entertaining and also like engaging to whoever's listening. Like if I can learn through solving a puzzle, it feels like it like feeds our inner problem solving nerd or something like that. Um, so I love that. I'm excited to see it. Yeah. I've never actually done an escape room, but um, <laughs> I know it's fairly popular and I think uh, a lot of um, students and residents probably have done it. And so they're probably familiar with that concept and, and it could go lots of ways. It could be, you know, kind of team building if you want to do it within just a small team or a small group. Um, and one of the things that we, um, I think I've struggled with, whether it be COVID or outside of COVID is kind of, creating a, this community of, as, a, as a team, as a, like a learning team, um, especially when you have learners coming in and out of the team at various times. Um, and so I think having an experience like this to like learn, but also kind of like work with each other, um, you know, hopefully in a safe space uh, or simulated space, I think would really be kind of cool. I'm, as I'm thinking out loud, that would be really neat, especially in a, as an attending, actually, to be honest, because um, to really get to know who they are and how they think. And, you know, you can observe, of course, the what you're hoping to get out is like, did they get the educational points that you want? But then you also can kind of see how they work through problems. And, you know, a lot of our job, of course, is our observation and when we give feedback and, and this would be another opportunity to do a lot of those things with like one uh, experience. I think that'd be pretty cool too. Amazing. I think the Curbsiders is going to have to branch out from podcasts and uh, start creating escape rooms. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we should have a Curbsiders teach escape room yeah. experience. Well, I was going to say, Noble, I feel like that kind of reminds me of what you said earlier about the clinical reasoning work. Like, it's all about showing your work. And so when you see how people kind of show their work in the escape room question, you can kind of both get a sense of where our growth edge is and kind of where we're at in terms of competencies and things like that. Yeah, for sure.
Ira, I know you attended a session you really enjoyed. Do you want to share some pearls from that one? Yes, Molly, I do. Um, this was Juggling Hats, How to Rock Every Role You Play as a Medical Educator, Dr. Mann Feinstead from the University of Cal- uh, Colorado. And I think what I really took home from this is realizing which hat you're putting on when you're speaking to a learner or a colleague or really anyone that you're meeting with um, to figure out, am I talking to them as a friend? Am I talking to them as a teacher, as a, an evaluator, as a coach? And kind of, um, and actually both of them are certified coaches. And so they were sharing a lot of pearls from their perspective of coaching and kind of helping uh, people get to where they need to go but using their own wisdom. So really being that guide um, to kind of help them, help whoever you're talking to find their own wisdom as opposed to necessarily like sharing your wisdom or um, kind of evaluating or instructing or maybe kind of uh, imparting all your knowledge to them. Um, So I really, and I feel like coaching in general has also taken um, medical education by storm. I mean that in a very positive way, but it feels that... um, there's a lot of kind of executive coaching available. And also what is our role as educators to also then be putting on a hat of a coach and kind of especially within medical education. And so they spent some time talking about how um, the, you know, like why use coaching in medical education. And there's some good data around there's increased trainee success, there's decreased burnout, decreased imposter syndrome, increased quality of life, less stigma and potentially greater accessibility um, than other potential mental health resources. And again, you know, this is um, borne out in the literature as well. So it just made me really excited to think about um, bringing a little bit more awareness into my meetings with people to figure out like what hat am I, what role am I taking on um, when I'm speaking with them and how can I potentially be more of a coach than um, any of the other roles that I could have. I found that session really helpful to just be aware that in some of the interactions that I'm having with a learner, I am wearing a particular hat. And I think it actually makes me a better educator when I know what hat I'm wearing in that particular interaction. So there's times where um, a learner might be just be coming to me to just vent about an issue. And maybe in that circumstance, it might make sense for me to just sort of be a friend and kind of wade in the water with them for a while. Um, But there's other times where they need me to be um, a sponsor and kind of, you know, advocate for them or link them up with, um, with some other, uh, individual that would help advance their career. Um, or there's times where they need me to kind of be an evaluator and give them some very specific feedback, um, to help them improve a particular skill. Um, and then the skill that was the emphasis of this particular workshop was coaching, um, which is, different, it turns out. I was having a really hard time kind of separating this coaching and mentorship, and it kind of seemed like it's really the same thing. But um, some of the things that I, one of the biggest takeaways I think that I got from that session was that coaching goes into the conversation with the awareness that your learner or the client or whoever you're working with actually already has the wisdom and the answers, and you're just sort of providing a space um, for them to sort of come to those answers, set their own goals, and and help them sort of um, determine what path they want to take to get to those goals. I really kind of found it very similar to motivational interviewing, which is exactly what you're trying to do. You're helping them 
set their own goals and establish what path they want to take to get to those goals. Um, and so I, I found a lot of synergy there and motivational interviewing and working with, you know, patient substance use disorder is something that I'm really interested in. So that synergy um, and really com coming into the conversation, believing that the person you're working with um, uh, already has the answers and you're just empowering them to get there, I think was great. I'm only laughing because that was the exact take home point that I, that I shared too. It was like the par true parallels of both the work that the folks from University of Colorado were, were presenting, but also like the very, the power of knowing that the person in front of you or the person in this conversation has all the answers already. You're just kind of like being a guide for them on their journey. And uh, that's a really powerful place to be in a really kind of like humbling place to be too. Yeah, I think it's great. I mean, I, I, it's very easy, I think, when you, when you always have the teacher or evaluator hat on to sort of see the person you're working with in a sort of deficit model where mm. they're missing something or they're lacking something. Um, and your job is there to fill it um, mm -hmm. and fill the gap. Um, but it's a really different mindset to imagine like, no, they're coming to me as a whole person and a person who has the answers. And there's a lot of things just clouding them from being able to really see that answer clearly. And, and my job is to sort of help maybe untangle some of the things that are keeping them from really visualizing what's already inside of them. I think that might be an idea for a future episode, Molly, where, you know, coming at things from like a strengths-based model or even like a whole person view. I mean, Dr. Meeks gets into that with the episode around kind of learners or um, doctors with disabilities. But I feel like seeing we often don't think about education from a kind of what's, what are the strengths and skills and whole kind of person that uh, is coming to me today. It's often like exactly as you said, like, where can I fill the gaps? Where can I share my little pearls? <laughs> pearls you know? Exactly. Yeah. And uh, it's really, it's just like a different frame shift mm -hmm. to be like, well, actually I just need to be the guide kind mm -hmm. of like walking with them on this. That made me flash back to last week. I was having a challenging situation with a patient and I asked one of my colleagues and I, she made me totally feel like a resident. She was like, so what, just talk me through what you would feel comfortable doing. Just talk me through how doing that would make you feel. Just talk me through like what your situations were. And she didn't give me any of the answers, which I initially was when I asked the question, like at hoping for, but it, it was sort of nice to have that space to think through it myself and have somebody to bounce it off without having them push, push it upon me. So that's I think it's a good do. skill. I mean, we're so used to like telling people yes. what mm -hmm. to do yes. and, and how to do it with the good intentions. We're like, you know, I kind of, I've gone through my own experience. This is what has helped me. Mm -hmm. Let me help you by giving you the shortcut mm -hmm. <laughs> to get mm -hmm. there. But I think with coaching, what we learn is that there is um, benefits through the process of themselves uh, getting through, getting to sometimes the same realization that we have gone through if we had similar, you know, things that we were working on. And so the, and the other thing I have found difficult or challenging is the coachee also knowing the role of the coach, because they're oftentimes are, are not used to being given the role of saying, no, really, this is you, this, you're driving this, um, you know, this change. And, um, and we really want to know what you're thinking and what you think is best and, and how you want to go ahead. And, and that's hard for them too. And especially if they're, if the role is, why don't you just help me? <laughs> Why don't you just tell me what to do? Um, and so, yeah. And the parallels to like therapy are unprecedented where it's like, you you know, you're not supposed to ask your therapist like for advice. They're yes. just supposed to be a sounding board. But at the same time, we've always been trained 
to, in medical education, give that advice, give the quote unquote right answer or kind of share what you would do. And so I think what coaching asks us to do is pivot and say, you know, we're going to just listen and we're going to kind of reflect back and do a lot of also motivational interviewing skills, which I think is a skill that I'm constantly learning more about and constantly improving for at least myself. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I got to attend a workshop on uh, when life gets in the way, helping support residents that need to take leave during residency. Um, that was put on by a group of chief residents, Dr. Borgata, Hartz, Wagel, and White. Um, and their talk really just highlighted how important it is to be aware of your institutional policies around leave and sick time and parental leave and FMLA and kind of how you as if you're a program director or a chief resident or have some role in the scheduling and, you know, or, or more like mentoring, how important it is to be aware of those policies um, to really help our learners get the time that they need when they need it and the support that they need to do that. Um, it was a very practical session meant for chief residents, um, but it really made me think a lot about um, some of the conversations we had had on a prior episode with Dr. Meeks around disabilities and doctors with disabilities and how kind of as a profession, we need to work on shifting our culture to allow people to take the time that they need. Because um, right now, I mean, taking six weeks throughout your whole time in residency mm -hmm. for medical leave feels horribly you know, un, unreasonable if you have a serious medical condition or multiple pregnancies or, you know, something significant happen in your life. And um, so I, I just hope over time we can work towards advocating a, a system that helps support us all. I love that. What was the surprising part of the um, workshop for you, Molly? Like, what, what did you not expect? I mean, this is a, a very small point, but um, so... They were they are working out of Penn State, and we're so specifically talking about Penn State's policies. But I, I think they are highly um, driven by ACGME policies. But uh, there, they are allowed six weeks of sick time, but then that also takes away their vacation time. And if so, a resident has already taken their four weeks of vacation for the year, and they need six weeks of medical leave, um, that could potentially jeopardize their ability to graduate on time. They may have unpaid time, um, which as a resident would obviously be quite challenging. Which I think gets at the fact of kind of what we are doing around the timing of residency and kind of not to totally flash back to one of our previous episodes, but if anyone's interested in time variable uh, medical education, we do have um, an episode around that from uh, season one, I believe. Yes. I, maybe we can mention all the episodes. Yeah, that's our, <laughs> that's our goal. That's our goal, actually, is to go through season one and yeah. two, but with a, within a recap, just to be extra meta about yeah, it, you know? totally, totally. Um, no, well, I heard you went to another uh, workshop um, this morning. Yes, I, I went to, to a wonderful that. workshop about <laughs> using podcasts as what? a tool for medical education. Um, and they mentioned a podcast. I'm trying to remember. Oh, yeah, Curbsiders Teach. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've, heard, I've heard of that one. Yes. Um, yeah, it was, I mean, similar to the things we've been talking about is how, what are the tools we have available for our learners who learn in different ways um, to deliver content. And I think I really um, liked and I think learned from from that session was a couple of things. I would say number one is, you know, this idea of doing, almost using a flipped classroom type of model, but using um, a podcast as opposed to something um, written for uh, the learners to Kind of consume prior to a, maybe a discussion. Um, I think there's some really good 
um, ideas that came up in terms of using um, both before um, maybe a session or ever even doing it with like small snippets. Um, I like I heard something about it, like a jigsaw where people would use uh, maybe the same topic but l- listen to different podcasts about that center around a certain topic and they would come together and and probably learn and have different pearls from each one of those that they could share as a group. Um, so it's kind of shared learning, but also they would be their own kind of like expert of the podcast they listen to. Um, and so I thought that was wonderful. And Josh, anything from presenting our workshop today that really was surprising to you or kind of new ways that you're thinking now that you got to interact with the amazing energy of the workshop participants today? I've, I had a lot of fun working with you guys on this uh, workshop. It was really great. I, and I thought... Um, I was really surprised by how much interest there was in podcasts. I think uh, it's clear that a lot of medical medical educators are realizing how prominent and how important podcasts are becoming uh, in the learners that they're working with. Um, Some of the um, barriers, I think, that the groups presented, I thought, were really interesting challenges for us to continue to think about. And, And I've been sort of reflecting on them since then. One of them was just the perennial challenge of the flipped classroom, which is that it kind of puts more work on teachers because, you know, usually the easy thing is to be able to just sort of come into a space. You got your PowerPoint, just kind of flip through it and you're and you're done. And maybe you have a PowerPoint that you made 15 years ago and you just kind of tweak a few slides and like the blue background (laughs) exactly the blue background with the yellow hopefully no one's still using that you just whip it no there really are I'm telling you man aerial font you know (laughs) just like the whole nightmare no you know so they just kind of tweak a few slides whip it right back out and and so now you're telling them to like not use the slides and like you know do all this small group stuff and you know jigsaw techniques and like it's just all sorts of new things now that an educator might have to spend time learning, which is now kind of maybe that might see it as a a taxing kind of thing that you're putting on them. And then of course, for the learners, they might be really busy with their clinical work, especially if we're talking about residents. And now you're telling them to go listen to an hour long podcast before coming to another teaching session. So now what would have been an hour long teaching session is now effectively two hours because now they have to do some additional work before coming in. So I think, you know, those perennial challenges of the flipped classroom and how to kind of address them in the context of podcasts, um, in addition to this generational gap that someone else sort of brought up, um, that although we're, we're seeing a lot of uptake in our younger learners and a lot of interest in listening to podcasts because they're listening to podcasts in other avenues, um, how do we introduce um, maybe um, older educators that aren't maybe listening to podcasts as much in their regular life um, to start exploring podcasts and maybe using them in their teaching? Um, so I thought those were really interesting challenges, and I think there's 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 good answers to them. I don't I don't have those answers right now, but I'm curious to like you know to keep thinking about them and and and, uh, and helping educators in this space by helping them find those answers. Yeah, I think it's still a, a very early early thing that we were discussing and talking about. And yeah, I think it brought up a lot more questions than answers for me, which is great because then hopefully we'll keep 
figuring those out and find best ways to share those with their learners and yeah. pass on that, that knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And our other kind of panelist co- uh, colleague, Katie, uh, Dr. Gilson, re- recommended kind of like the co-creation or co-learning with kind of the learners. And I find that like, yes, we might not have those answers, but there are people who are consuming that content, the podcast content, who might be able to like help us come to those answers or maybe have already kind of considered the best ways to learn using podcasts. So I think just kind of a shout out to all those folks out there to kind of come at whoever, whatever faculties around and, and, you know, who can maybe learn from the way that podcasts are used yeah. to supplement education. Cause it's happening. I think that was a really key point. Yeah. One of the, the participants asked, you know, how do I help my older faculty or my faculty that are used to doing things certain ways and don't feel comfortable with podcasts? How do I help them be ready to use this technology? And she highlighted the primary care pearls podcast, um, as an example of, it's led by learners and developed by learners, but using the expert content. And so the, the old faculty that aren't as familiar with that don't necessarily need to know the technology, but can share in the process. Um, and it's a bi-directional learning, which is amazing. And then, you know, outside of the co-creation, which I think has, has really been a huge leg up for, for the primary care pros production process, um, is also maybe in, in kind of uh, near peer or peer teaching and peer mentoring, um, you know, maybe in some institutions, there's a, there's a lot of kind of peer teaching that goes on, like peers maybe do like a noon conference or lead um, a small group discussion on a primary care topic or something like that. Um, and it'd be interesting, you know, if the educator themselves aren't familiar with the whole landscape of medical education, but just assigning one of the students to also find some podcast that they um, uh, could listen to that coincides with the topic that they're discussing since they might be more familiar with like where those podcasts live and how to how to sort of go about looking for them um you know they can sort of help in the maybe co-creation of that particular educational um session um and can sort of bring a podcast um to the attention of the educator that they might otherwise would have had a harder time finding so in addition to the co-creating model um you know if you're not trying to like start a whole new podcast, <laughs> I think there's still ways to utilize and work with um, learners in bringing some of these new technologies to the forefront. Josh, any, um, any tips that you have for listeners of advice that you've received or just kind of things that you've learned at attending conferences, like how to make the most out of coming to a conference? Mm. I think one of my... Um, mentors. I'm, I'm, I'm calling, calling them a mentor before I even arrive at the institution because we had a really, really great conversation. He actually kind of gave me this really, really great uh, quote. Like when, you, when you're talking about, for example, teeth, dental hygiene, uh, there's brushing your teeth and everyone kind of does that. But maybe what separates the average from the uh, kind of extraordinary are the people who floss. <laughs> I was oh worried you were going to take this it there. Is, this, is, this feels targeted. I know. I'm clearly not extraordinary. <laughs> I know. But, I am occasionally. <laughs> not. In, 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 his, in his example, um, you know, there's there's so much excellence um, within, within medicine. Like everyone brushes their teeth, so to speak. But I feel like the flossing in medicine is is the connections and the, and the networking. Um, and so I actually find that in conferences, yes, the content itself is really valuable and really, really great. Um, but even more than that, I think it's it's the kind of rebuilding old connections, finding new connections and new partners. And, uh, and I feel like that's really the thing that can really kind of 
accelerate your learning or accelerate mm-hmm. the work that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, you know, floss <laughs> in real life, but also floss through networking when you go to conferences. I think it'll really set you apart. That was a really nice segue or to kind of highlight the um, other uh, episode that we'll have with Dr. Essien about networking. So it feels like it just keeps coming back. Yes. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you're going to have another episode on dental hygiene. <laughs> well, the dental hygiene metaphor for medical education, I think, will definitely get featured somehow. Nice. How. Well, in addition to Primary Care of Pearls, uh, which is a great podcast, and I'd recommend people check it out. It's a really unique um, approach to a med ed podcast where you actually bring in patient voices which I think is very cool. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to plug? Anything that you're working on? Anything that's coming down the pipeline? Um, I think, I mean, I'd like to plug the Curbsiders. Curbsiders teach particularly. We did not pay Josh to say that. Don't mess with the, the actual main yeah. Curbsiders. Not as good as the Curbsiders teach. Matt, you didn't hear that. <laughs> <laughs> they did pay me to say that, yeah. by the way, Matt. Um, (laughs) and we are working on season two for the primary care pearls podcast, which we're really excited about. And we're actually partnering with our peds colleagues to bring some peds topics this time around. Um, so we'll, we'll be talking about adolescent health, um, and infant nutrition. Um, and additionally, we're kind of thinking about care of special populations. So we'll be talking about transgender health, um, refugee health, um, and geriatrics, um, talking about advanced care planning and dementia. And we actually have patient representatives for all of these different topics. And we're really excited to share their stories. Noble, um, is there any advice that you have for listeners planning to attend a future conference, how to get the most out of the conference or kind of things that you've learned along the way from attending these over the years that really has helped you get the most out of your experience? Uh, Someone who goes to a lot of different conferences. I think the best part of the conferences for me usually is getting to meet people and to and to network with other people and to kind of create connections and maintain those connections. Um, I usually have a different focus each time I go to a conference. Um, uh, there's usually a lot. Of, there's usually a theme to the conferences, and um, and there's usually so many things and so many things I miss because oh, I wish I could go, and they're both happening at the same time. Um, so. For example, this particular conference, I um, wanted to do things that I thought was beneficial for my learners in the educational space. Um, so the conference I went to, the workshop I went to this time was related to that. Sometimes it's related to some of my other interests that I have, um, whether it be um, remediation of, of learners and the struggling learner. Um, and so sometimes I'll, I'll use themes t- to get that uh, out of it. Um, what I... I will say that I have done more recently than I have in the past is actually go up and meet the speakers afterwards. It was really difficult for me to do. Um, that is not really my personality, um, but I have um, really enjoyed it um, and doing that. I try to make a point out of it if I can um, to, like I said, to kind of make some of those connections. And that's like, I think a tip I've gotten over the years from people I've been with is, you know, sharing contact information. You know, we, collaborating with others to actually put on your own workshop because I think we, everyone, we all have our own interests and of course so many people have the same kind of interests but I think workshops work well when there's kind of cross collaboration with different you know, institutions or different healthcare systems um, and this is the way I think it make, to make it happen um, for smaller meetings like AIM you really get to see this probably the same group of people over and over again and uh, which is kind of neat and some of the bigger meetings that I go to um, I also really like the cutting edge 
um, of, of medicine and, and actually learn something to help me apply clinically, I enjoy that as well. Thank you. Those are great tips. And we will ha be having an episode coming out probably a few weeks after this one comes out where we get to sit down with Dr. Essien here at AIM as well and dive more deeply into networking. But that was a great teaser. Thank you. <laughs> Perfect. Well, uh, thanks so much for joining us, Noble. Anything that you want to plug or any final take-home points that you want to impart upon us? Yes, <laughs> Aptum Wisdom or AIM Wisdom 23, courtesy of Noble. Well, if you have the opportunity to, to become uh, a, you know, involved in clerkships or in programs, I totally would encourage it. It's a really, uh, I think, meaningful part of my job is to work with learners, whether it be, whether it be students or in GME with the residents. Um, as you mentioned, Ira, being a lifelong learner, I think I, um, I do my, all parts of my job, I think hopefully better because I'm around the learners and uh, um, and so they're inspirational and um, and being around um, this group of people at AIM is also very inspiring and the things that they've been working for working on with is just kind of around all the different things that I think we're, that I think we all find valuable and, and and we have kind of shared in those values and so um, it's a great conference and so um, I enjoy coming here. This has been another episode of our Curbsiders mini-series, The Curbsiders Teach. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com slash teats. A special thanks to Dr. Matt Lotto and Dr. Paul Williams for their support in this project, and to Dr. Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music. Thanks to the team at Podpaste for editing our audio, and our social media team, Andrew DeLatte on Instagram and John Ung on Twitter. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, or contact us at thecurbsidersteach at gmail.com. A reminder that most episodes, though not this one because of our short turnaround time, are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.bcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. I'm Dr. Ira Krasinovskaya. Thank you for joining us today and letting us bring you a little nugget of medical edutainment. Until next time, I've been Dr. Molly Hoyblein, and hopefully you join us next year in person at AIM. Woo!